1: Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com. To stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Tom Papa. He's a comedian, also the host of the podcast Breaking Bread. After visiting bakeries across the country on his stand-up tours, Papa devoted himself to the art of bread baking. He tells us why his hobby has its perks.
2: As I always say when I talk about bread or as a hobby or whatever, it all comes down to it just tastes great. <laughs> it really is, if, you, if you're gonna develop a hobby, I recommend you get one that you can eat.
1: Also coming up, Bianca Bosker explains how supermarkets have transformed the way we shop. And we learned a Vietnamese technique for cooking with caramel. But first it's my interview with Mark Diacono, where we discuss all things bitter, fermented, and sour. Mark, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: So let's talk about your book, Sour, for a moment. So fermented foods are sour. Yep. Most of that came into being because of preservation. The Portuguese using vinegar to preserve meats, for example. Yep. Uh, in the Ukraine today, you know, half the food's fermented. Uh, So it was a preservation technique, which now you've latched onto as being sort of a key component of taste and cooking.
3: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, really, because, I mean, uh, even as a kid, you know, when I was kicking around growing up, it it was the sour sweets that I liked best, you know, the ones with a real kind of edge of of sharpness. And then as citrus became more available here in in Britain, you know, those kind of lemony things, but also, you know, things like salt and vinegar crystal, I've always loved that flavour. But... Now I'm older, you know, it, it, there's a whole world of techniques out there to do with preservation, you know, be they um you know vinegar based or or fermenting where we've got the action of very specific useful bacteria working in our favor to turn food that would be spoiling not even to really stop it spoiling so much as kind of get it to degrade in a way that suits us both flavor-wise, but also beneficially to our internal gut system. So the whole thing is, I I find, really fascinating. But it's really driven by a love of flavor as much as anything else.
1: Let's talk about some ingredients for a moment. Um, Mm. A lot of people ask me about how to make vinegar.
3: And I just put Mm. some wine
1: in a crock with some vinegar and let it sit. Uh, And they are amazed that you don't have to start with a culture or something else. So what is the best way to make vinegar?
3: Well, that's, it, it, it's really interesting, and, and there are a number of methods to do it. I tend to make most vinegar using white wine or cider, which, you know, it, it it's a very simple process. Always start with a wide mouth jar because it just allows the bacteria to get in. It gives a kind of broader airway, but you want to shake that up. It gets air into the liquid, leave it alone bacteria will come and inhabit it and over time that will turn into really lovely vinegar if you you should put a muslin over the top of it by the way and secure it with an elastic band or uh, a bit of string but if you can add to that about a sixth or so of vinegar that you've already got and it's got to be vinegar with mother and the mother that's referred to is already this this living community of bacteria that accelerates the whole process so Start with a sixth of vinegar with mother and you'll be straight into really extraordinary vinegar. Uh,
1: rhubarb and radish salad. Uh, I did know someone in Vermont years ago who used to eat rhubarb like celery, uh, mm. but, but most of us put a ton of sugar with it and put it in a pie crust. So so tell me about that recipe.
3: Oh, it's interesting. Years ago, I saw somewhere, uh, I think it was a Claudia Rodin recipe, but I saw that she put, rhubarb and radish together i think there was rose water involved and and it just sort of set a thing in my mind because i do love rhubarb and i'm constantly looking for new ways of enjoying it and i sliced both very very thinly and then i treated them both differently so the vinegar went with the radish and the rose water went with the rhubarb because rose and rhubarb there's a bit of rose in rhubarb's flavor anyway and it just kind of brought that out a bit a little bit of castor sugar over the top I mean so this is really just scattered on a plate and then really after that I would have salt for sure black pepper and then you could turn that into something more delightful with maybe blue cheese and a kind of herb that's very present but not wildly strong something like fennel leaf or or dill something like that that isn't going to overpower unless you go too heavy on it but it it just sort of sits there quietly waving at you without, um, you know, taking everything else away. And I think that that's really lovely.
1: We haven't talked much about bitter, which is one of my favorite mm. flavors. Mm. Uh, American, or at least New England cooking, has very little of it. Southern cooking has more of it uh, in the States. Uh, what about bitter? Uh, w- how do you introduce bitter? Why is bitter important, et cetera?
3: I think the interesting thing with bitterness, as with sour, is is not just thinking of, bitter ingredients that we can introduce into into our diet more you know some of the chicories and so on you know the leafy stuff but it's how we can use bitterness to improve the kind of overall experience of our food things like citrus peel it's kind of getting used to it and learning how to play with it in the kitchen but it it's also i think just slightly reeducating how we uh, how we want to eat and how our taste buds are calibrated and it's very very simple process to do you know we 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 love coffee That's as bitter as the days long. So a lot of it is about our perception, I think, a lot of the time. You know, give someone a coffee that hasn't got a good amount of bitterness to it, and it's really not coffee. Aubergine's similar thing. You know, cranberries, there, there are some flavors that we love here that are bitter.
1: Do you think there's a gap between a book like Sour, which is on the sort of leading edge of where we're all headed, I think, and what's actually going on in home kitchens, let's say, in Great Britain today?
3: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I think um there's a great range of interests and and places on the spectrum. In uh, certainly here and I would say across Europe um and from what I read and see in the states there there's a, a great kind of shift away from just from it, from it being just the kind of artisan big old foodies who are getting really into fermented stuff. You know, the step to making our own I think is yet to come a lot here in the UK but it's way way more popular than it ever used to be and we are I think as a culture and maybe as a species kind of becoming increasingly interested in nutrition you know because if there's one thing that we can say about the diet of most of us in in kind of developed countries is that maybe for the last 30 years or so it's been overfed but uh, are undernourished and, and fermented food and sour food is all part of that because nearly always sourness means health you know whether it's vitamin c through all of the or the citrus or the all of the great beneficial stuff that comes with the fermented
1: uh mark it's been just a great pleasure having you on mill street thank you so much
3: oh thank you so much it's been a real treat and uh, and and thanks for having me on
1: That was Mark Diacono. His book is Sour, the magical element that will transform your cooking. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television.
4: Chris, before we take our first call, uh, I have a question for you.
1: Sounds like this is going to be personal.
4: Do you have an it ingredient right now, something you just seems to sneak into everything you're making or you're just truly happy when you reach for it?
1: No, I'll tell you why. Because with Milk Street, there are so many new ingredients (laughs) that are running around my pantry and uh, in my refrigerator. I'm always discovering something new. So I would say in the old days, you know, 10, 15 years ago, probably. But now I can barely keep up with you know, this week's new discovery. So three months ago was, you know, gochujang. you know, two years ago, it was uh, Zatar Spice, and then it was Aleppo Pepper. And so, you know, I just, I'm constantly finding something new. I can't keep up with myself at this point. I'm falling behind.
4: That's both very exciting and also sounds somewhat anxiety-producing. You know, it's like, oh, no, I'm making dinner. Which one of my exciting new, you know, toys do I pull out to play with? Well, it
1: totally goes against my basic premise, which is you only need to know 25 recipes, right? I mean, that, just don't worry yeah. about the rest of it. So yeah. I've completely violated my basic tenet of cooking at this point. So,
4: oh, dear. You know, oh, well.
1: and that's life, right?
4: It's a fun problem. <laughs> anyway, right. on to the question. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
1: Hi, this is David
5: from New Jersey.
4: David, how can we help you today?
5: Well, I hope you won't mind if I first say how much I appreciate what you guys are doing. As a self-taught cook, I need a lot of teaching. So thank you both very much. Well, thank you. I have a baking question. I don't do a lot of baking, but on the occasions when I do bake, I often see that this is especially when I'm making quick breads, pancakes or muffins like that the recipes call for making a well in the dry ingredients and pouring the wet ingredients into the well and for years I've been ignoring that advice because it's so much easier to clean the bowl if I do it the other way so I was wondering is there a correct answer or uh, am I okay saving myself the uh, extra cleaning
4: let me just say this you start stirring at the very top with the wet ingredients and pulling in the flour. And that way, it's you don't get as many lumps. You gradually incorporate <laughs> the flour. I would think that the opposite approach, where you have the liquid and then throw in the flour, you would end up probably overbeating the dough. I don't think it matters so much with pancakes. And I'll let Chris weigh in on that in just a second, because he's the pancake king. But, you know, if you're making a quick dough, you don't want to overbeat it. So I would argue to actually, I'm sorry to say it, follow the instructions. And uh, (laughs) yeah, but now Chris is going to weigh in. And I think it's slightly different with pancakes where it really doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, forget it. Just Pour the flour into the milk and the eggs and the melted butter and gently whisk, gently, slowly. You know, a big whisk is a great way to blend dry and liquid ingredients together if you do it really slowly. It doesn't really beat them. It just blends them if you do it slowly. So that's what I use as a big whisk. But it makes absolutely no difference in pancake batter whatsoever. For pasta, I use a food processor to make my pasta dough and then throw it through a machine, just roll it by hand, and that's fine.
4: Well, how about quick breads, though, Chris?
1: Yeah, I don't do it. I get the liquid ingredients, the banana breads, and then you add the flour. And if you use a big whisk, you know, with the tines are far apart, and you draw that through very gently, you can easily mix them together, and it's fine. Mm. It's not a question of messy bowls, it's just a question of, I don't think that method's really that much better anyway. You know.
4: So you're actually agreeing with David. Yeah. He can do it any which yeah. way he wants.
1: Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> a... Free love kind of guy, man. I mean, you do what you want to do. I'm from the 60s. yeah. Don't worry about it.
4: All righty, then. There you go. All right.
1: Thank you so much.
4: Thanks, David. Thanks Thanks for calling. Take care. Okay.
1: Okay, bye-bye.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who am I talking to?
5: I'm Bill. Bill from where? Norton, Ohio.
4: Okay. How can we help you today?
5: Well, I'm trying to uh, replicate my grandmother's sauce. They call it in New England, red gravy. I'm originally from... Saugus, Massachusetts, which is just north of you. And uh, she came here 34 years ago and made her gravy, and I wrote it down. And over the years, I've gotten away from it. And I had a couple questions to go back to the original. She always took the seeds and the skin off the tomatoes. And then she always heated the paste up in the oil before she put it into the gravy. I stopped adding baking soda at the end, and I switched from white sugar to honey. So there's a, there's a lot of variables I changed there. And I wanted to know, uh, why did she heat the paste up? I, I quit doing that sometimes because it was I, I wasn't cooking the meat. And um, is it important to get the seeds and the skin out? I've seen other people cook with it. I wanted to get your guys spin on how you feel about that.
4: Well, let me start with the skin and the seeds. The trouble when you remove the seeds is all that jelly around the seeds is really the yummiest part of the tomato. It has the most intense flavor. So sometimes you're going to inadvertently get rid of that sort of tomato jelly. So I I wouldn't myself.
5: She cooked uh, her meat up, you know, the meatballs and the sausage, and then she put the paste in there and heated it up.
4: Right. That's after she browned the meat and browned the tomato paste, then she added the water. Yes. Yeah, well the tomato paste that's actually something I was taught at cooking school that it's important to saute it to sort of get it to caramelize a little around the edges and sort of up the umami. I think the last thing you mentioned was baking soda, which of course is there to neutralize the acid. I sometimes just add a pinch of sugar, which will sort of distract you from the acidity and sort of balance it in that way. But I love the acid in a tomato sauce. So uh, I wouldn't add the baking soda in the end. Let's hear what Chris has to say. He might completely disagree. Chris?
1: What? Disagree? (laughs) I have one word, butter. I just think butter and tomatoes are just this amazing marriage. Instead of adding baking soda, which you can do like a quarter teaspoon, just try adding a little butter, a couple tablespoons of butter. I find that balances out acidity and and gives you depth at the same time. Another thing I I do very often— It's just vast quantities of olive oil, both at the beginning and the end. I'm not above adding a quarter cup of really good olive oil. And it just gives you fruitiness. It balances out acidity. Good idea. It sounds like you're doing almost everything right.
5: Well, that was about it. I'm going to try this out a little uh, different from how I've been. I'm going to try to get back to the original.
4: Well, good for you. Uh, Good for you. You're a serious cook. It's nice to hear you talk. Yeah.
5: I want to tell you, I've been listening to your show since it began. And I was wondering why you had two parts where people call in. But that's the best part of your show, because you never know what these people are going to ask. And it's helped a guy like me become a better cook. You guys are Thanks. give wonderful, common sense answers. I love both of you, and thank you very much. Thanks. Take okay. care.
1: Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Martha. And you're calling from where?
6: San Jose, California.
1: That's why you're so cheerful sounding, I guess. (laughs) How can we help you today?
6: (laughs) I'm interested in bread baking. I've recently discovered that um, since I started making bread in 1980, the system is completely different now. So before we used to knead the bread... Until smooth and elastic. And now it's stretch and fold. And before we let it rise in a warm place, and now it's in the refrigerator. And before we baked in bread pans, and now it's on parchment inside a Dutch oven inside the oven. Hmm. So I'm wondering hmm. how and when and why all this changed.
1: Here's my answer My first VW, you turn the radio on, you turn a dial to get the right station. Right, And since then, the controls on ovens and cars and everything has just gotten worse and worse and worse to the point it's almost impossible to use. So my quick answer is there was nothing wrong with that method, which is the method I still use. You need oh, the dough okay. until it's elastic and it, like the baby's bottom, the whole thing. You're talking about a no need bread, I think, with a parchment paper in the Dutch oven. That is a good method. I've done it. You do it because okay. water and flour together develop gluten over time. You don't actually need mechanical kneading to develop gluten. But, you know, it's not going to give you better bread. And the stretching and folding thing, you know, people have to keep coming up with new baking cookbooks, right? Bread books. So (laughs) they got to come up with something. They can't just say, hey, that old method worked fine. So no, you you don't have to do any of that. It's just, you know, there are different methods and that's fine. But if, you know, sometimes the old is best and I prefer a dial where I can turn a knob. So that's how old-fashioned okay. I am. I don't know about you. Sarah, are you a uh, turn-the-knob person? Oh,
4: yes, I am. I mean, it's funny, Martha, what you described is what I did with my grandmother when I first started, you know, the whole old-fashioned kneading thing. Right. I agree with Chris 100%. The old-fashioned way was just fine. The thing about the no-knead bread is it takes less work on anybody's part, really. There's something to be said for that. But yeah, it's all good, you know. All right. But
6: I must say, the stretch and fold, I get a better texture of the bread than I did with kneading. So I'm glad for that new innovation.
4: Clearly, you're a serious bread baker. You keep going. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help.
1: Take care. Thank you.
4: Bye-bye. Bye.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from comedian and avid bread baker Tom Papa. That and more after the break.
0: This is Jason
7: Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near
1: you.
8: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Mo Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Tom Papa. He's a comedian, also host of the podcast Breaking Bread. On the show, he invites guests to join him for an hour of eating, drinking, and conversation, inspired by his love of good food and baking sourdough bread. Tom, welcome to Milk Street.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Um, I watched your recent comedy special, You're Doing Great. Thank you. On Netflix. I I like it when you got crazy about people who don't eat bread. Yeah. (laughs) Could you just talk about that? I mean, you're sitting in a restaurant, you get the bread basket, and people refuse to touch it because they're on a special diet.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I've i always loved bread. I always loved eating. And it was just funny to me that as adults, all of a sudden, <laughs> when we'd be out to eat, and the waiter would come over and ask, would you like bread? Especially when I moved to L.A., I would be around people that acted like he just asked if he could drop off some nuclear waste at the table. <laughs> 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 and... It slowly started to emerge that people thought that bread was this evil substance. I was like, wait, but wait a minute. How is it that people have been eating bread for centuries and I finally have a credit card and can go out to eat (laughs) and now bread's evil? It just didn't make sense to me.
1: Well, I think you, you commented, someone would say, well, I'm going to lose three pounds in my new diet. All I have to do is give up bread. And you go like, <laughs> yeah. wait a minute,
2: that's really a lousy deal. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so you're going to lose three and a half pounds, no one's ever going to know, and you don't eat right. bread. <laughs> it's yeah. like, why so, are you even here?
1: <laughs> so now you've turned your interest to food uh, in your new podcast, Breaking Bread.
2: Yeah, well, it started when... a. Uh, I learned how to bake sourdough bread from a friend of mine and it became a big part of my life very quickly. I really enjoyed it. Uh, You know, I'm on the road a lot. So when I was home, I was able to spend my time writing and baking bread and it just kind of was this very fulfilling, fun thing to do. So then when I would go on the road, I wanted to learn more about it. And I would visit bakeries in whatever city I was in and see what flour they were using and kind of like poke around and see, you know, if, if it was a really good spot, like, just trying to learn, just trying to get better at what I was doing. And uh, it became this huge part of my life all of a sudden. But it kind of goes back to like how I was raised and the things that I'm talking about now and the things that I really love. I love eating. I love eating more than anything. And the celebration of, of being with your friends and your family and breaking bread and being with each other, that's always the centerpiece in my life. That's always the centerpiece for relating to everybody. So it's, it kind of like just merged what I grew up with, with this new hobby that I didn't know I was going to have. And now my life is uh, covered in flour.
1: (laughs) So, okay. So what's, what is it with sourdough versus using commercial yeast for bread? Is it the flavor? Is it the fact sourdough starters are needy? You feel like, you know, you have another child, (laughs) uh, is it because you dislike the elemental process without using a commercial product like the commercial yeast?
2: Yeah, there's a little bit of snobbery involved in that you don't use commercial yeast. In the tale of what happened to bread and why bread became evil is because we used things to speed up the process, and commercial yeast is one of the, one of the gateway drug <laughs> to, to doing that. And, you know, we ended up with these Frankenstein loaves of things that really weren't bread so it's just the purity of having sourdough it's it's all self-contained you can just make it whenever you want and it, you'll always have it available to you but as I always say when I talk about bread or as a hobby or whatever it all comes down to it just tastes great <laughs> it really is if you if you're gonna develop a hobby I recommend you get one that you can eat. And sourdough bread is, I mean, it's just better. It's deeper, it's richer, it's more filled with flavor than if you were to just throw commercial yeast in and use the same flour.
1: So I was watching, you have a series of YouTube videos. You were reading questions and answering them, and you were talking about how people think they need, like, you know, gallons of starter, and all you need is a few tablespoons.
2: Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. It took me a little while to learn that as well. People have been you know, inundating my social media and asking questions about how to do this stuff. And a big mistake they make is overfeeding it, just throwing more flour in and more stuff. In and I always tell people, no, think lighter. Once it becomes active, you could scoop everything out but one tablespoon of starter. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like just the residue in the bottom of the bowl. There's enough activity in that that it will, if you add 200 grams of flour and water to it, you'll have enough to bake bread. It's that active. So if you think more, if you just think in smaller terms, you'll save yourself a lot of flour and a lot of uh, headache. I
1: think you talked about this on the YouTube video, but um, I assume yeast is different in different places. Mm. If you make a sourdough in a different place, you might get a different type of yeast, and therefore you actually could tell a difference in flavor?
2: Yeah, there is dispute about it. But it's different. It is different. You know, I have a couple different starters, one that we just started here in L.A., and then another one that I got from my friend who taught me initially from the La Brea Bakery strain. And, you know, that one comes from yeast that's um, from grape skins. And they're Mm -hmm. definitely distinctly different flavors when I bake bread with each of those so, yeah, they do. They have uh, they have personality. And I could only imagine it's the environment and the water, the air. You know, I think all those things are factors. Do you
1: think it's in the last few years people are now looking at other types of flowers, rye flowers, et cetera, et cetera? Is that an art that's been lost uh, in America for a long time is now coming back to add flavor? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it it is something that people are— are rediscovering there's flour manufacturers that are going to different regions of, in the country and they're growing the natural wheat that came from that area that was indigenous to that area and they're bringing those back. You know the whole thing comes down to thoughtfulness. It comes down to if you just are thinking about what you're doing and what you're eating and what you're what ingredients you're putting into something. And I really think that that's that is kind of the cultural trend is that people are just becoming a little more thoughtful about this stuff.
1: Um, the other thing about food, I, I think is so interesting is everybody you hear radio shows and TV shows. Everyone has wonderful food memories. you know, the salad days and everything was wonderful. and I remember asking someone a few months ago, a cookbook author. She said, "No, actually, my parents were terrible cooks, and I haven't talked to them in ten years. And I thought that was such a refreshing answer. Uh, Do you you think that that's people going to be honest about their food memories at some point, or that's just a place you can't go?
2: No, absolutely. And it's kind of a cool thing because I find that the more you dig, the more something comes out. Like I um, I had Duncan Trussell on the last episode, and... There was not the story of like we all sat around and every Sunday we got together and had this. It was, you know, we moved like every couple of months. We were relocating. My parents were splitting up. This one, the mother wasn't that great of a cook. It wasn't this. But then, as the conversation went on, there was a grandmother who made this southern rice, and all of a sudden, this one little memory triggered, and then he just went off into the woods talking about how amazing this rice is and. You can't be a human being without have being fed at some point, and that that memory, I'm sure, is in there somewhere. Yeah,
1: I think about my grandmother, and it was the the radish and celery plate. Uh-huh, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was like, and the roast beef every time.
2: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar one, and I would go over, and she'd give me a sandwich, probably bologna on white bread, But she was the only person that put a little pickle on the side of the sandwich. And (laughs) every time I went there, I was like, (laughs) oh, you looked forward to that little tiny gherkins pickle on the side. And she didn't make it. She didn't do anything. All she did was open the jar and put it down. But that was part of her story.
1: Uh, Let's talk about risk. Uh, You say it's life, it's comedy, it's what writing is, and that's what relationships are. It seems like people do everything they can to avoid risk. Mm-hmm. But you you seem to embrace it as being essential for happiness or however you want to put it.
2: Yeah, which does not mean that it came naturally at all. But uh, I have learned that you kind of have to think about what risk really is. Because when I got out and started going down this comedy path and thinking, well, this is breaking away from everyone in my life and who have jobs and that traditional secure path. But it really ultimately was not really risky. It was just different. The, everything is kind of almost at equal risk. You're always, and I am, always creating a little nest and creating something that I think is going to be safe, whether it's professionally or with my family or whatever, but it's kind of an illusion. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you know. It's-
1: the other thing you, you mentioned I think is interesting is also the, maybe you should call it the inconvenient life, but the idea of cooking, right? Cooking was supposed to be more convenient, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the drudgery, that day-to-day stuff, is actually the joyful stuff if you look at it from that lens, but we got sold on the idea of convenience as being happiness, right?
2: Yeah, I mean... That race, that running, that trying, like you said, trying to get joy from, all, from the convenience, it kind of left everybody very unhappy. But you make, as I do, a big meal every Sunday. The family knows that they have to be there. And this isn't streamers. This isn't you know, a big sell This is just it's Sunday. We're, we're sitting. If you want to have a friend mm-hmm. over, you can have a friend over. We're going to have a lot of pasta. We're going to just sit. and I guarantee you. That my children will remember those meals and those times, you know, it's kind of like the recalibration between chasing happiness and chasing something that's meaningful. I think that's our confusion. I think for myself, it's like I spent a lot of years thinking, "Well, we got to be happy. We got to be happy." No, you need meaning. You need some. You need your life to have meaning.
1: Tom, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on Mill Street.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. That was comedian Tom
1: Papa. His podcast is called Breaking Bread. In his comedy specials, Tom Papa likes to give advice. He tells his fans that their lives may be sad, boring, even depressing. Hey, but that's okay. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that same thing applies to the kitchen. Julia Child once roasted a large chicken for James Beard and MFK Fisher at her home in France, and it turned out undercooked. Julia commented... You think that I know how to cook a chicken by now. And that's the truth about cooking. It's never perfect, even at the hands of Julia Child. So as Papa says, get comfortable with failure and learn to enjoy it, no matter how it tastes. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Vietnamese caramel chicken. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Recently, you went to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and you had caramel chicken, which I think is a little different than what we thought before you went.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's a great example of this kind of push and pull between sweet and savory that you see across Vietnamese cooking. And I found it really fascinating because the sweetness traditionally comes from something as simple as sugar. And the savoriness, of course, comes from the classic Vietnamese ingredient fish sauce. So I was working with Chef Peter Quang Franklin, and he introduced me to this entire body of recipes that marry those flavors in a caramel sauce. And I kind of expected that to mean it would be heavy and dense and just way too much. But actually, it was incredibly nuanced and really very good.
1: So you start... I would assume, I'm making a caramel sauce. so just sugar
0: in water in a wok? Or? Yeah, pretty much. Well, actually, he just did it in a saucepan. It was really incredibly simple. I mean, all he did was take like a quarter cup of sugar, combine it with a little bit of water. Some people use coconut water, which we really like, and simmer it until it darkened to a rich, rich caramel. After that, all he did was season it with lime juice, lemongrass, and, of course, fish sauce. And the combination was so light, yet had so much depth to it, That was it.
1: So this goes on chicken, it goes on seafood, it goes on almost anything?
0: Yeah, it was really interesting because he showed me a number of different ways to use it. He used it on shrimp, he used it on pork belly, he used it on chicken, all sorts of seafood. And, And in every case, the finished dish ends up being lacquered and In addition to being delicious, it's also beautiful. And the flavors were really rich, but also bright and light. And I think that's the part that I liked most, because I expected caramel to be heavy and dense, but it actually really played so well with the flavors of whatever he threw in it.
1: So Peter Franklin sounds like he was born in New Jersey, um, but, but evidently he was born in Ho Chi Minh City. Does he have a restaurant? Is he, he cooking in a food stall? Or
0: yeah, he was born in Vietnam and adopted during the 70s. Eventually, he made his way back to Vietnam where he opened up a non-Saigon, a restaurant in Ho Chi Minh that... Pays attention to tradition, but isn't afraid of pushing the tradition in new directions. And it's in the middle of this kind of chaotic market. And he literally just goes out his door and grabs the freshest, most vibrant ingredients and brings them back and transforms them. It was really a fascinating experience.
1: So to make this at home, you make the sauce and then... What about the chicken part?
0: You throw the chicken in and you cook it right in the sauce. And that's the best part. And it's a very gentle way of cooking. And so that you kind of preserve the tenderness of the protein, whether you're doing shrimp or salmon or chicken or pork, whatever. Uh, but then again, the result, of course, is this beautiful lacquer that is so flavorful.
1: Well, you know, we're always looking for something simple to transform the ordinary. So it would seem to be a caramel sauce with fish sauce and lime juice and lemongrass and, uh, of course, sugar is the perfect way to do that. I mean, you could do this on a Tuesday night.
0: Absolutely. 20 minutes.
1: Jam, thank you. A recipe from uh, Peter Franklin in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnamese caramel chicken. Thanks.
0: Thank you. You can get this recipe for Vietnamese caramel chicken at milkstreetradio.com.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Bianca Bosker takes us to the supermarket. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket. And most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold smoked ultra thin slices as well as center cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moey, M O W I salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Gainesville, Florida. How can we help you today? I was calling with a question about making schmaltz. Oh, nice.
6: Yeah, there was no chicken size like I'd normally buy, so I'd gotten ones with skin on them. And I figured, why waste the skin? So I started rendering it down. And about halfway through that process, I realized I've really no idea how to make schmaltz correctly. So I was wondering if you had any pointers about um, how do you know it's done? How long do you cook it? How much fat do you render out? And that kind of thing.
4: Okay, so what you do is you pull off the skin, and then you chop it up. And it's easier to chop up if you freeze it a little bit you know like half an hour 45 minutes and then chop it pretty small half inch throw it into some a pot with some cold water and bring it up to a simmer and then just simmer it gently it takes a while might take like I don't know up to 90 minutes what happens is the water evaporates as it pulls all the fat out of the chicken skin now towards the end when you can see that the skin is beginning to get a little bit crispy you could throw in some onion for flavor if you want and that let it keep going for a little while longer. The ideal thing is to end up with clear chicken fat. And I actually like the skin part. You know, yummy, crispy stuff. It's sort of like chicharrones mm-hmm. with pork. And you could use that as a garnish for salads. Just strain it out and then dry it and sprinkle it with a little salt. Okay. Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what the water's for. It's the same as rendering pork lard. You don't want to overly brown it. Uh, So it's a nice, light flavor and color. But I know in Mexico, the pork lard's dark brown, and they like the color, and they like that extra flavor because it's used as sort of a base on tlayudas and other things. By the way, there is a uh, workaround. A company called Fatworks, oddly enough, uh, sells different, you know, like schmaltz and lard in jars. It's really good and it saves you all that work.
4: Does it taste fresh, though, Chris?
1: Well, let me put it like this. Compared to the time and effort required to render that stuff, yes, it (laughs) tastes great. It's absolutely delicious. (laughs)
6: Okay. And then how long does either fat works or homemade schmaltz last in the fridge or freezer?
1: Until my kids are, like, graduate from college, probably. (laughs) It'll last a long time. But I just want to say good for you for rendering your own schmaltz. That's pretty cool.
4: All right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you. That was a good question. Thank you. Great
1: question. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Have
4: a good one. Bye-bye.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, please give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is
5: Steve from Hopewell, New Jersey.
1: How can we help you?
5: I have a question about peeling garlic. Sometimes I get a head of garlic, and the cloves all peel beautifully, and it's nice and easy, the skin pops right off. And sometimes I get ahead of garlic, and the skin does not want to come off. It's frustrating, it just sticks to the clove. And I'm wondering, if is there a way to tell ahead of time when you're buying garlic whether you're going to get an easy peel or a hard peel garlic?
1: That's an excellent question. This reminds me of the hard-boiled egg <laughs> conundrum. As far as I know, no. A couple tricks, though, I would... Uh, Use the flat side of a knife and just flatten Smash it a little it. bit. And the other thing you can do, it takes a little more time to just cut off the root end of the clove. That also helps as well. But if you do those two things, you should be able to get the skin off pretty quickly.
4: Actually, I think the bigger issue when you're buying garlic is not whether it will be easy to peel. It will be whether it's fresh. So what you're looking for when you pick garlic is firm, round cloves. That uh, I, can,
1: I can tell you it. I won't mention the name of the chain but the place I often shop, I would say half the heads or more are rotten. Rotten, like yeah. moldy really? inside, sprouted, well, yeah. soft. And so I agree with Sarah. Do you flatten the clove with the side of a knife? Sometimes I do. It depends if I want nice whole slices or not.
4: You know, the other thing you can do is a quick blanch, boiling water, cold water, then they should be much easier to peel. That's another thought. Okay. Of course, they'll be slightly cooked.
1: Also, you know, hard neck garlic is...
4: But that's hard to find except at farmer's easier markets. Easier to peel. Yeah. yeah. It's got a thicker skin. Yeah.
1: Which comes off easier.
4: Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so, Steve. Take care. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: This is Mo Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners.
4: Hi, my name is Sharon Horn, and I'm calling from Spring Creek, Nevada. And here's my tip. Instead of dirtying a whole bunch of prep bowls, use pre-cut pieces of wax paper for all those little preps. It saves you a whole bunch of dishes to do at the end, and you can just pick the wax paper sheet up and dump those chopped up bits right into your bowl. Thanks!
1: If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Slash radio tips. next up it's journalist bianca Bosker bianca what's been going on in your world uh, this week
8: well I don't know if you and I see eye to eye on this, but I have long had a soft spot for supermarkets, and I felt like we were at this moment where people really had developed this reappreciation for the supermarket, which made me want to investigate the history, evolution, and logic of supermarkets.
1: Well, I, I like the supermarket in that it's this voyage of discovery. Every time you go down an aisle... You, you find something you didn't know was there. But, but what about the history?
8: Well, first of all, let's define technically what a supermarket is, which is this behemoth that houses somewhere between 15 to 60,000 products and essentially satisfies our desire to buy everything under a single roof. Now, there's some debate over this, but by most accounts, the first supermarket opened its doors in 1930 in Jamaica, Queens. It was a King Cullen, which is still around today. And I think while we think of supermarkets as maybe being a little humdrum, they were revolutionary. To put it in context, you know, for hundreds of years, Americans had essentially pieced together their groceries from public markets and from corner stores. And stocking up on food would involve You know, cadaverous smells, flies, bartering, haggling, arguing. (laughs) And the supermarket essentially took the Ford factory with its focus on efficiency and standardization and reimagined it as a place to shop for food. And these supermarkets were really considered such marvels that um, in 1957, on Queen Elizabeth's first official state visit to the United States, she actually requested a tour of a suburban Maryland giant food, where she and her husband, you know, wandered the aisles with rather surprised shoppers. (laughs) Likewise, uh, Yeltsin on his own official state visit was apparently more taken with a supermarket than NASA's uh, Space Center, because he later wrote in his autobiography that what soured him on communism was this view of the excess and plenty of the Texas supermarket that he went to visit. (laughs) Now, in the 90 or so years since, the supermarket has swelled in size. The average supermarket is now something like 42,000 square feet. But what I find interesting is actually the design hasn't changed that much.
1: Well, one thing I always wondered about is uh, there's a Whole Foods in Boston and one in Portland, Maine, I go to occasionally, and they're totally opposite. That is, in Boston, the produce is on the left— And in Maine, the produce is on the right. What they sell, how the aisles are structured, there's a lot of differences. So I would assume the chains have to customize their marketing and design to the specific market they're in to a large degree, right?
8: Well, to some extent. But I would wager that at least what's similar about those supermarkets you're describing is the fact that they open with The produce, whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right, it's sort of the beginning of your experience. And most supermarkets are oriented according to what I would describe as the reverse mullet. So you've got party in the front and business in the back, meaning they open with flowers, fresh fruits and vegetables, these things that really evoke, and maybe the lizard part of our brain, this freshness. And way back at the at the back, at the opposite side of it, you've got all your staples, the bread, the milk, the things that sort of lure you through the store so that you'll cover as much ground as possible and hopefully pick up things along the way. And although there's many different floor plans that they can choose from, most tend to be what's described as the grid racetrack combination. So you have the center store, which has all your parallel aisles of canned goods, paper towels, body lotion on um, this grid. And then around it is the racetrack where you have the butcher, the fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, And it's called the racetrack in part because we tend to move more quickly along that part of the store.
1: Well, one of the other things in more recent years I think is interesting is the last part of the store before you go to checkout tends to be the impulsive takeout stuff, things that maybe you don't absolutely need uh, and are probably more expensive as well.
8: Right. We're all sort of familiar with the idea of those impulse buys by the register, but I was very interested to learn just how much research has been done to try and understand how we behave in the grocery store. You know, they've marshaled eye tracking technology, video cameras, good old fashioned surveys. And what they found is, well, apparently we spend the majority of our time in, and this is a technical term from a researcher, quote, ineffective wandering. (laughs) Uh, We also tend to buy more of things that are stocked at or just below eye level. We tend to think more highly of things that are stocked on higher shelves. There was an experiment where they actually, in a real supermarket, rearranged the soup so that it was organized alphabetically rather than grouped by brand, which is more typical. Um, And they found that grouping canned soups alphabetically actually led to a decrease in sales. The thinking was that actually inefficiency is profitable. When you make things easier to find, there is a drop in sales. And this sort of data is used to, you know, figure out what goes where. I should say, you know, data is one way to figure out where things go, but money is another. And slotting fees are very common in the field, which is to say that if you want your product on a shelf, you're probably going to have to pay to get it there.
1: So it's interesting to me, though, with all this marketing and uh, and business, you know, power It's such a low-margin business. They make very little money as a percentage of their revenue. And maybe that's because food is very price-sensitive, and that's the nature of the beast, right?
8: Well, you know, I think that supermarkets, they're not always well-loved. I think that for a lot of people, they're their least looked-forward place to go. They've certainly been losing our dollars to restaurants. They've been blamed for making us fat, for contributing to climate change. But... If we can step back a bit, I think that there is something special about the humble supermarket. I think that in this age of curation and sort of uh, aspirational lifestyles, to me there's something sort of wonderfully, uh, almost absolutely encyclopedic about the way the supermarket tries to cater to each of our desires and needs, no matter how baroque they might be. It's sort of this place, not for who we want to be, but who we are,
1: well, to summarize, uh, the supermarket brought down communism in our time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Boris Yeltsin. Bianca Bosker, another fascinating look at the world of food through a unique point of view. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. You know, supermarkets were a complete game changer, but I wonder if recent events may change our buying habits once again. Thousands of restaurants, also bakeries, have been transformed into grocery stores. They buy produce from local farmers and sell it to home cooks. So maybe it does take a national health crisis to fix our national food distribution model. Local farmers feeding their community. Who would have thought? That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening.
8: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba, Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sidney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George bernal Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.